0: All right, you guys doing okay? Everybody still awake? You with me? Yeah. Um, we're going to continue on our journey through, ex- I'm sorry, not Exodus. Not Hebrew. Hebrews, thank you, seeing if you're paying attention. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, if you got your Bible or your device where you're studying with us, we're on part 3 of this study of Hebrews chapter 6. For those who don't know, and you're wondering why are we going through Hebrews chapter 6, it seems random, it's because Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews... <laughs> list out six foundational principles of our faith. Whether you want to call that Christianity or the sect of the way or Messianic Judaism or whatever you want to, whatever label you want to put on it. There's six foundational principles and they're listed out here. Somebody name the first one, the first night. Repentance from what? From works that cause death. And we said that that was sin, right? Or that's doing God's commandments, but with the wrong motivation, right? What was the second one? Trust in God. Trust in God, yeah. Remember, we said it was uh, pistos epitheon, which means uh, in Greek, that is a reliance upon God, a faithful, uh, 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 like Jeremy put it, a trust upon God. And then tonight we're going to be covering the third one. If you want to go there with me, Hebrews chapter six, we're going to read it real quick. And looking at verse one, therefore, let us move on beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and a faith in God instructions about cleansing rites or baptisms, your translation might say, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and God-permitting we will do so. And I shared the story the first night. If your foundation is not right, the rest of the house will be wrong, right? It may look pretty good on the outside, but if you compare it to the plans and the, the intention and the vision of the builder, it's going to be off, right? We want to make sure this year at Sukkot, that our foundation is correct and everyone has at least a degree of understanding and proficiency with these topics that the writer of Hebrews says are elementary principles and how many of you have learned that maybe you didn't have a good grasp on these elementary principles I did I'm studying you know throughout the day at work as I'm waiting for different tradesmen to come it's very funny that I'm I'm in the process of building houses and I'm waiting for tradesmen to come to finish up houses and in between, I'm studying the book of Hebrews and talking about foundational principles. It's kind of cool experience. But in the early 90s, uh, my dad was a pastor of a sizable church. And uh, the church building was, uh, it could accommodate, I don't know, several hundred people. And up above the stage, there was a baptismal tank with a plexiglass screen in front of it. And me and my older brother, we like to go on adventures during the Sunday morning service. And this particular Sunday morning and some year in the early 90s involved us sneaking out of the auditorium in the sanctuary and going around in the hallway and going up into the stairwell that led behind the stage and sneaking out to the door that led down to the baptismal tank that was behind the stage, the platform. And we're standing there at the base, at the, the top of these stairs, deciding whether or not we have the guts to go down into the baptismal tank, crouch down, and then slowly peek up through the pexiglass screen at all of the church that's sitting out there as my dad is preaching. So naturally, we do that. We creep, we, we creep down the steps and we're down inside the baptismal we we'll take i remember being hunched down my brother is he's like snickering and then slowly we turn around and we peek over just our eyes are peeking over and we see everybody and i remember seeing my dad like in this posture and he's walking back and forth on the stage and he's praying and there's the pianist is over there playing softly and my dad's kind of doing this altar call kind of moment at the end of the church service and he's praying everything's really quiet and everything's really serious and he's praying and he's asking people to come forward and to be prayed over. And meanwhile, my brother and I are peeking over the baptismal taking. We can see everything. I mean, we're talking hundreds of people sitting out there. And, and, then, and then I see a couple of my friends. And they see me. So naturally, I have to wave at them. And they're like, you know, they're giving me like congratulatory thumbs up, right? They're like, you did it, man. You guys are awesome. And people start to see us besides my friends. Imagine that, right? People are looking at us. And then other people in the church start to snicker and giggle as well to the point that my dad as he's pacing back and forth and praying he goes i don't know why everyone's laughing right now this is an extremely serious moment a very reverent moment and then i guess someone ends up pointing up or something like that and he turns around and i'm like oh And, of course, the biggest, baddest, meanest deacon is already, like, on, on our heels. And he's making a beeline for the, the, the side. And that door over there pops open, and it's that big deacon. And, he, and he stare, he's like, come here. Right? And so I know I just, I just reaffirmed every stereotype about pastor's kids. But that's okay. It's worth it. I deserved it. But there's this, uh, this next night we're going to be studying this, uh, this concept Teachings about baptisms, or like my translation and what I just read was uh, was instructions about washings. What does your translation say? Immersions, Immersions. okay. Anybody else have a different translation? Baptisms. baptisms, okay. Anybody else have a different translation? What? Like smicha. Okay, interesting. That's like a more like a like a messianic translation. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's going to come later. Talking about the laying on of hands. Okay, so remember I taught you guys the other night how to look up the original language. You know that the Book of Hebrews is not written in English, right? What language was it written in? Greek. Koine Greek. Koine Greek, a very common street Greek. Okay, a marketplace Greek. So how do we access the original language? If we want to learn what is this phrase here, it's very important we dig into it. I told you there's a lot of different study tools you can use online. The one I tend to go to for some reason is called BibleHub.com. So if you have a device or a phone or iPad, go to BibleHub.com and look at Hebrews 6.1 and BibleHub.com. BibleHub.com. And then you're going to search for Hebrews 6.1 and then click on Greek or G-R-K. And it's going to break that verse out word by word and show you the Greek word that's being used there. Actually, is it isn't it Hebrews 6:2 two? are we on Hebrews 6:2 now? Hebrews 6:2, I'm sorry. Somebody who's there and has figured out how to do it, tell me, what is the tell me the 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 transliteration of the Greek words being used there? What is it? Baptismon, Baptismon yeah. What's the other I'll give you hints on the board. <laughs> but I want you guys to be able to find it. I want you to have the, the the confidence in finding the original language of the text. It's yeah. What is it? Yep, yep. So baptismon Didakin. Didekin. Baptismon Didakin. Now let's break this phrase down. Didakin is teachings, teachings or instructions. Instructions about baptismon. Now, this is interesting to me because baptismon, the way this word is conjugated, it's actually a plural noun. Plural noun. So it's saying baptisms. Baptisms. This is weird to me. Why? How might this prove problematic for some Christian denominations? A verb to baptize. Yeah. Only done once. Something only done once. Yeah. So, for instance, um, baptism here is plural. Is there one washing or two or how many are there? And then the oldest manuscripts of the book of Hebrews actually have an accusative tone, which just means that it, it implies these are instructions proceeding or closely connected to baptisms or immersions closely connected to this ritual. So to understand this phrase, you know, the book of Hebrews was written to Messianic Jews. They're Jews who practice Judaism, but also believed in Yeshua as the promised Messiah. They knew about washings. It was a way of life. Now, anytime you go to a Jewish settlement in the land or really in the, even outside the land of Israel, one of the best and surest ways that an archeologist can tell that that was a Jewish settlement, that there was a substantial Jewish presence there is the identification of ritual baths called mikvah ot, where people would undergo what is called a mikvah, a mikvah. A mikvah is a ritual immersion in water, which is a primarily a physical way of cleansing the body. Okay? It's, it's, it's more physical than it is spiritual. All right? At least a mikvah is. Has anyone ever been to Israel and seen an ancient mikvah? A lot of you. Good. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. In an ancient mikvah, usually you can tell it apart from just like a you know, a bathtub or just a, a water cistern. Why? Because it would have steps leading down to a body of water. I went to uh, Magdala with Stacy and Noah in August. And, and in Magdala, about, I don't know, 500 feet off the shore of the Galilee, there is a mikvah, an ancient mikvah. And it's about six feet below the ground that they begin to excavate it. And there is actually water flowing through it still. But they're all over the place in Israel. If you go to some of these old, old uh, you know, ruins and stuff, like if you go to Capernaum or or you go to, uh, you know, like um, Magdala is another one, Jerusalem, they're all over the place, right? But they all have kind of the same characteristics. Uh, top of Masada, even, there's there's uh, Mikvaot, there's ritual baths there. In the middle of the desert, on top of a mountain plateau, there's ritual baths that held rainwater so that Jews living on top of Masada could undergo a mikvah and become physically clean. And they usually look like this, not hundred percent, but they usually look like this. It's a square or rectangular pool that is hewn out of stone. It's cut out of a solid piece of stone. <laughs> then you have steps, usually three steps, usually three, not always. So you got a pool and the pool has to hold at least 40 sayas of water a seah is a biblical unit of measurement it'd be like a gallon or something like that but really it's actually like um, one seah I think is like half a gallon if I'm not mistaken I can't remember exactly but 40 seahs of water and then three steps and archaeologists will say oh yeah that's definitely a mikveh. that means there was religious Jews living here okay this was a Jewish settlement this was a Jewish town alright now why would let's pretend we're a first century Jewish community here living in Dothan, Alabama Why would we want to make or build or use a mikvah? Somebody tell me why. What does the Torah prescribe? When does it prescribe us to use a mikvah? Suzanne? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If I want to go to the temple, I have to undergo a mikvah. Now, yeah, it makes sense that here, maybe in Dothan, we could do a mikvah, right? But I've got a 6,000-mile journey to Jerusalem to get to the temple. Bad things might happen. I might come across a cemetery or, or, you know, I might touch someone who's come in contact with with dead bodies or something like that, but, you know, I might become ritually impure again. And that's why there's mikvah oat all around the base of the Temple Mount. Because we could do it again when we get to Jerusalem and prepare ourselves to ascend the Temple Mount. Why Why else is the Torah prescribe for us to go into a mikvah? Cleansing after childbirth. Cleansing after childbirth, exactly, yeah. You would go into the waters of a mikvah. Alright, why else? After
1: a monthly cycle.
0: After a monthly cycle, menstruation, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of become within Judaism a tradition to uh, when when the couples are married they undergo a mikvah. Yeah, good. Anybody else?
1: Um, for us today, is, it's just is it more of a status change. Like, do you know that you've been walking without, like I said, the that, only tonight, without
2: foundation. Yeah. So when you mikvah, uh, it, it brings that back. Status changes. You should, you know, change in direction. Yeah. Uh, 180
0: <coughs> to look, Right, yeah, we'll get into that a little bit more tonight and what how, what, what has changed, if anything has changed. So mm-hmm. why else would we undergo a mikvah? Cleansing from touching something that's unclean. Cleansing from touching something that's unclean. So you guys get the picture. And actually, a mikvah, if we were a first century Jewish community, we would probably build a mikvah before we built our synagogue. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's how important it is in Jewish life to have a mikvah, a kosher mikvah that we could use and, 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 and obey certain Torah commandments that, that say you must go into the waters of a mikvah. But that's how central it would be to our life. So when the writer of Hebrews says you should move on past instructions about washings, is the writer of Hebrews talking about the practice of going into the waters of a mikvah if we already know everything about it? Probably not because we have grown up around a Jewish community. We have we have seen people go into the mikvah. We have done the mikvah ourselves. We don't need any more instructions about washing. It's not an elementary principle of our faith. It could be, but it's more just a way of life. So what is he talking about? Now, as we move into the first century, we see a change happening with the concept of the mikvah. Turn with me to Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three, a man emerges on the scene, Luke chapter three, what's his name? John, the Southern Baptist, right? John, the one who is immersing the immerser, John, the baptizer. He's the guy that's standing on the banks of the Jordan River wearing uh. Very little, right? Scantily clad. I don't know. He's eating locusts and wild honey. And what is he saying? Somebody tell me what he's saying there in Luke 3. He's saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it says that people came to him from all over the countryside and were immersed by John. So we see here that the mikvah, at least by the first century, the act of ritual immersion begins to take a form where it is a symbol of collective repentance. So now if you've been living contrary to the Torah, contrary to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as a Jew, now there's this guy saying, get ready. The Mashiach, the age of the Mashiach is near. The kingdom of God is near. Come into the waters, which the Jordan is very intentional because that's where the children of Israel crossed over before they entered the promised land. He's saying, let's go back to our roots, Let's, let's have a revival. Let's rededicate our lives. Let's undergo ritual immersion. Not because you've come in contact with something impure. Not because you just ended your monthly cycle. Not because you just had a baby. But because your soul is detached from the ways of God. And you need to repent. You need to make teshuvah. And that is the case still within Judaism today. There is a mikvah that is a ritual mikvah that is just physical. It's the physicality of things. You come in contact with something, you have a baby, so on and so forth. They're all the examples you guys just laid out. Let's do a mikvah. That's a repeated, a repeatable thing over and over. That's a ritual. But then there is a mikvah of teshuva. I've been living contrary to God's commandments. I want to make tesh, uh, teshuva. I want to come back and I'm going to undergo an immersion, a mikvah. I'm going to rededicate myself. so john in the mercer in luke 3 he seems to have started a revival of immersion based upon the concept of repentance but even this like i said was not new jews have been undergoing and deciding to rededicate themselves to the torah and this is an outward symbol of that but especially leading up to the fall holy days even to today orthodox communities will people uh, of age will undergo a ritual immersion of mikvah leading up to the high holy days why because it's a symbol of repentance and we repent leading up to the high holy days but then we get to acts chapter 2 look there with me acts chapter 2 verse 38 acts 238 acts 238 you there what is happening here it's the holiday of shavuot right pentecost Peter is standing up, and you know they just experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's tongues of fire on their head, right? They're probably somewhere in the Temple Mount complex at this point in time in Acts 2:38, which it's like I said, it's surrounded by mikveh pools, mikveh baths, mikveh oats. Okay, it's the only place that can accommodate this size of people and this amount of people that we're going to see get baptized. And what does Peter do? He stands up, and what does he say in Acts 2:38? Somebody tell me. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Almost the exact same verbiage as who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Peter is saying, you all here today have come a long ways from your homes to the temple to celebrate Shavuot. Guess what happened this year, 50 days prior on Passover? The Mashiach came, he died, and he rose again. And now he has sent the Holy Spirit, which he promised to us. And now that is prompting us to call you, fellow Israelites and Jews, repent and then be baptized. Now, how many does it say were added to their numbers that day? 3,000 3, people. Now, where is the only place in Jerusalem where you can undergo and, and, and immerse that many people? Temple. Would be the Temple Mount. What, they're, what Peter is saying is, guys, come back to the faith and embrace the promised Messiah. He has come. He has died. He has risen. He's regathering our people. He's, he's, he's the guarantee of the promises of God, isn't he? And they, they take him up on it, don't they? And as the movement spreads, we're going to see this shift a little bit of the immersion in water being one from solely physicality solely of I need to be washed of something that is physically unclean to now we're going to understand and we're going to teach that this is going to be something that is more spiritually oriented. Go with me to Acts 8.26. Acts 8.26. To spare my voice, could I get a loud reader to read some of Acts 8.26 and just keep reading till I tell you to stop. Could someone do that for me? Okay, let's stop there. So what's transpiring here? There's an Ethiopian man from Africa who came up to Jerusalem that year and is maybe on his way back to Africa and is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he's approached by someone who can better understand and expound upon and teach the scroll of Isaiah to him, isn't he? His name's Philip. And the, the, the Ethiopian man says, can you explain this to me? Can you teach this to me? So he teaches them. And then at some point, Philip must have said, oh, by the way, part of becoming a follower and part of the repentance process and pledging your allegiance to this Messiah that Isaiah speaks about is undergoing a baptism, undergoing immersion in water. And so they're, as they're riding along, and you notice in the beginning of Acts 8, verse 26, it says that they were in the desert, but they came along water. It's interesting, right? But what do they do? He baptizes him. He explains everything and then he baptizes him. And in doing so, makes him a disciple, a committed disciple of the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about. Now, as this movement spreads, like I said, we see things begin to change. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, this is uh, what we so often call the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven, on earth, and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them, teach them to obey all that I've commanded. So we see that same template, don't we? Teach them all that. Now, look at the Greek of Matthew 28, verse 20. If you're in Bible Hub or something like that, you can pull it up. And you can see the very first word that Yeshua says, teaching them to observe. It's this word right here, k, or it's a different conjugation of it. It's that same, to teach, to instruct, instruct them to obey all that I've told you. But you see how closely it is connected to the idea of baptism as well, right? And so often is the case, and I know many of you grew up in different denominations of Christianity, or some of you didn't grow up in Christianity at all. Um, But, you know, many denominations treat ritual immersion differently and practice it in different ways. For instance, When Noah was a baby and he was an infant, I was a member of a a Presbyterian church. They believed in ritual infant baptism. And so naturally, as good Presbyterians, we took Noah up on the stage one Sunday morning. And they had a little, looked like a bird bath, really. And they had a little cup in there. And the pastor uh, took a cup of water out of the little bird bath thing and slowly poured it over little tiny infant Noah's head. And then prayed a special prayer and that was noah's baptism now later in life noah was baptized fully in water but in 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 uh lutheranism and in, in catholicism and in evangelicalism there there's a wide variety of how people is it something that people can do as a as a child or they have to be an adult do they if so what age do they have to be there's all these different questions right that go on but when you look at the biblical concept of baptism when you look at the biblical concept of a mikveh and you put it back into its original context its historical context it has to be a full immersion in water and in fact in ancient judaism and even in modern judaism if we look at our mikveh pool here it can't just be any old water it has to be water that is living water mayim chayim, which can come from a river it can come from rain Or it can be the ocean. It can't just be any water. And in fact, you have to dunk yourself three times into that water for it to be a kosher mikvah. And in fact, many times, you do it completely naked. (laughs) You even take off all your jewelry jewelry and everything. There's a special, in, in Orthodox neighborhoods and communities, there's a special building and a special room in that building that's much like a like a restroom that you would go into privately. You would shut the door behind you and you remove all your clothing and your jewelry whatever. And then you would go into the mikvah and you would come out and you would put all that back in. Why? Because that's a, a picture of going back into the womb and coming back out of the womb as almost like a new creation, as being born again of water. And so that's why we see Yeshua says, I ask that you be born again of water and of what? Spirit. Spirit. And so the emphasis now is not, it's not replacing the physical. The emphasis in our faith, rather, is adding on top of it, the emphasis of your soul, your spirit. Now, when you do a mikvah, when you go into the waters of a baptism, you're, you're saying something about my soul has changed. It is a spiritual, symbolic gesture of something that is, it's on, the out, it's on the inside, right? Now, so, we haven't answered the question, what are instructions about baptisms? Well, apparently, in the first century, in the early believers in the sect known as the Way, what they would do is they would get someone who is a candidate for becoming a convert to the faith. And they would question them. And then they would instruct them. There's a uh, there's a first century document, maybe early second century document. It's actually called the Didache. And there is a section of the Didache. The Didache, it's also known as the Lord's teaching through the 12 apostles to the Gentiles. There's another title for it. It was written in Koine Greek. Like I said, in the late... 1st century, early 2nd century, and one of the chapters of the Didache, chapter 7, is all about ritual immersion. It's all about baptisms. So the Didache, which means teaching, chapter 7 says, but concerning baptism, thus baptize yourself. In this way, baptize yourselves. Having first recited all the precepts of the faith, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in running water, living water. Do you hear that? That's just like our mikvah, right? In living water. But if you don't have running water, baptize them in some other water. And if you can't baptize them in cold water, baptize them in warm water. How many of you are baptized in the springs at Clio, right? It's cold, right? Many of you are baptized in the Blue Spring. You did a mikveh at Blue Spring in Mariana. Yeah, it's cold there too. Jordan River. Jordan River is cold. Jordan River is cold, yeah. yeah, yeah. He says, but if you, um, if you have neither water, warm or cold or running, the writer of the DDK says, pour water three times over the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if your water supply is limited, pour water over the head three times. <laughs> then it says, but before baptism, this is really important, listen, before baptism, let him who is going to be baptized and him who is doing the baptizing fast beforehand and others with them if they are able. And you shall command him who is to be baptized to fast at least one or two days. Now, this is the the Didache. Do I firmly believe that what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is talking about, read to them, the Dedicate chapter 7? No. But it shows us a good example and an insight into the early, early movement of Christianity and how they treated people who were candidates to be baptized. And I like that. I think that's very interesting. And so as a congregation, what we have done in our past and many of you have been immersed under, under you know, m- my, I guess, assistance, we want to call it that or whatever, where I've been out in there in the water with you and, I, and I've asked you, but I've asked you, you know, publicly, I asked you three questions. But even before that, many of you remember, I sat down with you beforehand and I asked you questions and I said, do you realize the gravity of what you're deciding to do? Do you, do you understand what it means to take on the yoke of our master? Do you understand what it means to take on your, your cross and follow him? And I'll ask you really intrusive questions like this. Have you accepted him as your Lord? Have you confessed your sins? Right? I've asked you these very tough questions. And then I say, okay, if you still want to go through this, you and I are going to fast for 24 hours before, we get, before you are immersed. And then, even still, I take you down into the water. And many of you, I've, I've I've, stood right next to you as I've done this. And I look at you, and everyone's there standing on the bank, right? And I look at you, and I say, Anthony, do you accept Yeshua of Nazareth as your Lord and Savior? And Anthony says, yes. Anthony, do you confess that you are a sinner in need of salvation? If Anthony says, yes. Okay, Anthony. Do you agree to obey all the teachings of our master and to live a life that is worthy of his dying for? If he says yes, I say, okay, Anthony, in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, you are immersed today. And Anthony dunks himself three times in that water. Many of you have done that. Now, those three questions, is that in scripture? Is there a, a, a very explicit template and formula for how we at Dothan Messianic Fellowship go about immersing people? Absolutely not. But is that bad that I do that? No. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says there should be some instructions proceeding to or leading up to washings or baptisms. And I, to the best of my ability, am trying to fulfill that. Look, Anthony, before you do this, I have to get you to weigh out the cost of what you're doing. Because it is, it is going to change your life. You're going to suffer for his name. And I don't want you to flake out on that. I want you to be committed to that. Do you understand me? Okay, let's fast. Let's pray. And even then, I'm going to examine you. As we're standing in that water, I'm going to examine you. And then there's going to be a bunch of people who are witnessing you answering those questions and witnessing you going into the water. And then when you come up, they're all going to applaud for you. Why? Why is it a community thing? Because we're gonna help hold you accountable. There is a, a early first century sect of Jews called the Essenes. They lived out in the wilderness along the Dead Sea, in the coast, of, in the mountains, the, along the coast of the Dead Sea, possibly in Qumran. They were possibly the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the scribes of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were a very closed off sect of Jews. They were a separatist sect of Jews. And they believed in a form of asceticism, which means not, not partaking in the pleasures of this world. When someone wanted to join the Essenes, they said, okay, that's fine. You have one year. One year you're going to live in a mostly solitary confinement life and a monastic kind of lifestyle. And then then and only after that year, We will come out, we'll bring you out, and we will examine you. And we will test you and see if it is still your intention to become an Essene. And then and only then would they undergo a ritual immersion, a mikvah, and they would come up being an Essene. Now, the Essenes died out because they didn't practice. They didn't didn't really have a lot of children. (laughs) They were asceticists. Now, I'm not an advocate of doing what the Essenes did. But the Essenes had the right idea. They wanted people who were committed to their sect. They wanted people who weren't going to flake out when things got tough. And I think for 2,000 years, the church has done a lot of wrong and a lot of violence to this idea of baptism. We have profaned the ritual of baptism in the Christian movement and the church because we're taking babies and saying, yes, you're baptized. We're taking people and baptizing them in horse troughs five minutes after we do an altar call and and assume that they're going to live a holy and set apart life they might assume that when things get tough they're going to stay strong for messiah i don't think that that's wise i think that's making a lot of converts but that's not making a lot of disciples i believe in making disciples like matthew 28 says if someone says i have a desire to be immersed in water and pledge my allegiance to messiah First thing I'm gonna do is why? Do you understand the gravity of this decision? Are you sure? Okay, let's think about it. Let's fast together. Let's pray about it, because I don't want you flaking out. Same thing when I marry people. Are you sure? (laughs) Let's lay it all out there. How much money you got? How much debt you got? Right? What's your love language? What annoys you? What angers you? Are you sure you want to do this? You're two broken human beings raised by broken human beings. Are you sure? Because I don't want you flaking out. I'm putting my stamp of approval on this. You better stick it out, right? And we are the bride of Messiah, right? How much more so do we have to understand the gravity of our decision? That when we go into the water of a baptism... It's not just this fickle decision. Oh, yeah, it's cool. It makes good photos, right? Yeah, it's a new it's a new beginning for me. Maybe. Are you gonna be saying that a month later? Are you gonna be saying that when, when your boss calls you in to work on Shabbat? Right? I gotta teach you everything. Obey everything that Yeshua commanded, right? So The takeaway from this is that if you have been immersed into the faith and you have not really grasped the gravity of what you got yourself into or no one sat you down and explained it to you, it might be worth sitting down and studying it out. It might be worth going back and doing it again if you've never been immersed before. But you claim to be a follower of Messiah. It seems to me, it's pretty evident in Scripture, that if you have the ability to, you should be immersed pretty soon after you profess your faith in Messiah. If you have not been immersed, you should be immersed. You should be baptized. It's part of our faith, it's part of a public declaring your allegiance to Messiah. Now, if you come to me tonight and you say, Yeah, I wanna do that, I wanna, what do you think I'm gonna say? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Why? Let's think about it. Let's pray about it. But no, I think that's something that's worth desiring if you have a desire for that. And I would love, it's, that's actually of my top three favorite things to do in my position at Dothan Messianic Fellowship is to immerse people in water. I love it. I love it. Let's go back to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Let's reread it here. Therefore, let us move on beyond beyond the elementary teachings about Messiah and be taken forward to maturity. Meaning, it just hit me just now. If you haven't mastered these six things, if you haven't at least got a grasp on these six elementary principles, you cannot move on to maturity. You are not mature. So if you're trying to figure out the deep hidden secrets of the Hebrew whatever and you don't know about baptism if you don't know about the resurrection of the dead if you don't know what it means to put faith in god you're wrong stop turn the internet off learn the elementary principles it says not laying in the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and a faith in god instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment and god permitting we will do so Let's pray, and then we're going to do a time of Q&A. Father, I just thank you for this time where I could instruct and teach. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice that has yet to go into the waters of baptism and be immersed as a disciple of our Master and our Savior, Yeshua, that they would do so. They would feel compelled to do so. But they would weigh out all the cost of doing so. And Father, I ask that you protect everyone as they drive their home their various directions tonight for those who are not staying on the property. Thank you again for your Sukkot, a time of rejoicing and celebrating and, and resting in your providence under the shadow of your wings. And I pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. You guys have any questions or comments or complaints or feedback? About, yeah, I see hand. Marcus? Well, I would say that's not ideal. I would say that the person who is baptizing you and overseeing your baptism is much like the man who marries a bride and groom. There's someone who's bringing you to the knowledge of the gospel. There's someone who's holding you accountable to it. And ideally, I would say it's an elder of a local congregation, someone that can speak authoritative into your life and and disciple you does that make sense now is it okay to self-baptize now obviously if you're like you know in prison or deserted island even there you know I, i would say yeah there might be exceptions to that but i would say ideally there is someone who is a spiritual authority figure in your life who would help you with that and oversee that just like it's just like a wedding if you think about it it's like you've got people watching you've got a mediator so to speak and you're coming into and being born again under the realization and under the yoke of your bridegroom yeshua does that make sense and i think that's important to have someone there like when i marry people i tell them look this isn't the end of my involvement in your marriage um i'm here for you and i will spend the rest of my life fighting for you to stay married together and i i i'm always a resource for you my 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 living room my dining room table is always open to to you coming over and talking um, and I think the same is someone who baptizes you. It's like it's like if a doctor was to deliver a baby and just like lay the baby down and be okay, bye, right? Or just leave the baby there. It's like no, the, the doctor sees to it and does follow up checkups, right, with the with the mother and the and the baby and and takes the vital signs and and make sure that everybody's healthy, right? And eventually, yeah, the doctor backs off and is like, okay, you're good. Seems like you got this under control, right? And eventually, that's what a that's what a good spiritual mentor and, and elder would do. Is okay, it looks like looks like you're pretty squared away. It looks like you understand this. Go and make disciples of your own now or something. So does that answer your question? Cool. That's a really good question though. Tanya? Um, this is a question kinda tagging
2: on to his question. So for someone who
1: maybe has been baptized, you know, by
2: the elder or of a congregation and they have the understanding um because that word is plural, yeah. Then let's say, you know, down the road it comes to Passover. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think that's totally kosher. I think there's a difference between someone coming to faith as a believer and disciple of Yeshua, and someone who wants to do a uh, a yearly mikvah, like leading up to Yom Kippur, for instance, or the High Holy Days. Absolutely, I think. And I mean, there still is, one could say, uh, the injunction to undergo some kind of ritual cleansing after after physical contamination of some kind. I think that that's hygienic. I think that's wise. But yeah, I think, so so in other words, like, these things right here, you know, if if we have the means to do them according to the, the, when the Torah prescribes us to do them, we should do them if we can. But um, in terms of, like, you want a a yearly spiritual renewal, I think that that's fine. It's different than coming to faith in Messiah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think I would encourage you to do that. So. Kirk, I saw your hand. Do you do service like We do, yeah, yeah. Um, we always do it on Shavuot okay. because it's uh, the anniversary of Acts chapter two. Um, and, and we have in the past done it and spaced it out a little bit more. We've done more of them, uh, but we were just talking the other day about um, maybe, maybe we, we limit that down to fewer days um, and maybe look at just doing it twice a year as opposed to multiple times a year. But yeah, we do, to answer that question, we definitely do it on Shavuot every year. In in
1: my personal law, I can't speak biblically on this, but as understanding the iniquities of my forefathers, it has been passed to me, and then that, the blinds come off my eyes. Yeah, And it's like, oh, I'm dealing with the same thing that, you know, been passed down, Yeah. Uh, it was key for me for, to do a mikvah, mm. you know, those
0: transgressions and <coughs> kind of Yeah. And that's why I asked. Yeah. Do yeah. And, we know. do it. We do like a mikvah service, like a big formal thing, but like Miss Helen, who's here somewhere, I don't know where she's at. There she is. She came to me and she's like, I would like to do, I would like to do a mikvah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be immersed. And so we just got together a handful of people, six, eight people, mm-hmm. and we went down to the, the muddy the muddy river, the Choctahatchee, down in Clay Hatchee, and uh, bless her heart, she was she was very patient, and uh, we walked out into the river there, and immersed her in the river, just, you know, there's six eight people there, and it was a beautiful time, a uh, very, very beautiful time. So there, there's, Kirk, there's big services that we'll do, like at Shavuot, but also if people come to me and say, I have a desire to do this, then I'll, I'll obviously, we'll take the elders and other people, and we'll go out, and we'll do that if, if time permits, so... Uh, so,
1: so what you're saying? Let me take her in the gym. So what you're saying is, is mikvah still a, a really? It could be an integral part because, I'm, because that was my question. like, let's say, how does mikvah?
0: Mm-hmm. How does
2: how
1: that um how, do we incorporate that in our lives now? Is that something like I know
0: like you're talking about like a ritual mikvah? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we're at a disadvantage. Like a mikvah is the same as a baptism, but there are different types of mikvahs and baptisms. So, in their different languages, so we're kind of at a disadvantage. But there is a a mikvah unto repentance. Yeah. That is, you're you're professing faith in Messiah. But then there is mikvah oats that you do when you feel necessary or when the Torah prescribes you do them. So,
1: you hear a lot about that in the Hebrew roots movement. mm -hmm. So, it's kind of like, when do we do that? Do we do that like the Jews do that? Or do we, or is it like, because it's really ambiguous?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um,
1: what does it fit into our daily walk?
0: Does it fit in or when does it?
1: Well, yeah, well, so maybe yeah. Yeah, those are the questions. Like, does
2: it fit into our daily walk? Are we, are we prescribed to do that, or
0: just... Yeah, I think there's, we're... we're she's asking, are, are we obligated to do mikvah oats, like ritual immersions in water, after when the Torah prescribes? Now, I would say yes and no. The The... the there are times when the Torah says go into a mikvah for the purposes of being able to as- to approach the temple. Then there are times when the Torah says do a mikvah because it's hygienic to do so, or whatever, or just because, just because you should. Uh, and I think we should study it out, and you know, as families, especially as couples, read through it and come to conclusions as when, when are these rhythms and when, when are these things applicable to us and when are they not? And always err on the side of obedience versus disobedience. But if, yeah, I mean, if you guys, if you like touch something that's dead, for instance, it's like washing your hands, right? It's hygienic to do that. And I think a lot of the, the mikvah, the ritual mikvah is dealing with a lot of physical components of our existence. Whereas a, whereas a, a mikvah for repentance is dealing with the spiritual component. And I think that's... So,
1: do synagogs now have mikvahs?
0: Yes. So, yes.
1: so if we had our own building, would we have a mikvah?
0: I would love that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anybody want to donate money for building a mikvah, let me know. We could do that. But yeah. Uh, Jim? I just wanted to but the other part of the answer for the and was asking about doing
2: the mikvah privately. I know you're a finger answer, but... Yeah. Is that... You're making a public testimony. Yeah. The general public needs to know that that guy just changed from this kingdom to that kingdom. Yes. And so it's a public testimony. That's the other portion of it. It's yeah. not just you. Everybody's deceived. Now, oh, he's one
0: of them now. Yeah, it's like when you, go to, you get your U.S. citizenship. Uh, if, you're, if you're from a different country and you've gone and done this, uh, you go to a room and it's a public ceremony. And you all, you pledge allegiance to the flag and all. I mean, it's a public thing. And the same, how much more so when we pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of heaven, right? Is a public thing that we do, um, and we celebrate it, right? So, yeah. Xavier? Are
1: there any passages that specifically call uh, baptism into Yeshua a sign or a symbol? I looked and I could not find any. Everybody seems to think so. Hmm. Am I missing something? Like, a
0: sign or a symbol?
1: Uh, yeah, as opposed to it actually doing something. And I'm not talking about giving you eternal life, but like yeah. maybe, uh, maybe giving uh, some deliverance in the life here and now. Uh, because it talks about how it, the passage you read earlier, it said it's for the remission of sin, for example. And, yeah. Uh, another passage in Acts says it's to wash away your sins. And I don't think that's talking about like, ticket to eternal life, per se, but yeah. it seems to be a little more than just a sign or a symbol, so that's
0: why I'm asking. Hmm. It's hard, because I don't want to say yes, that it is for the remission of sins, because um, I don't want to get into original sin and Catholic theology world, because <laughs> that's what Catholic theology believes, is that it washes away original sin. Um, but at the same time, it seems like a really, really important ritual, Um I'd have to I'd have to spend more time studying out to be able to give you a concise answer on that, an accurate answer to the best of my ability but okay. um Did I say something? So, in that regard, yeah. It's, it's more of a, it's
2: more of a public acknowledgement of what's already transpired in your heart mm-hmm. more than it is something that happened just then. When <laughs> even though it can be something that happens just then because the Holy Spirit has kinda of upon people when they've done that. Mm-hmm. So um but so I think it's more of an indication that this is what transpired and transpiring in my heart, and here I'm just making it public, acknowledging of that in front of all of you. Hmm. I don't know that it says it to really. you, yeah, yeah, but I know myself a few times in my life that I have that mm-hmm. Um and I think it is a huge component to have
1: the instruction to go with it, especially if you're having a mickler the
0: first time after you have I guess a better Yeah Xavier, another way to ask that question we could say can our sins be remitted and forgiven even if we aren't baptized what would you say to that?
1: I would say, like, in terms of eternal life, yes, because, like, the thief on the the cross died without being baptized. So, therefore,
0: is baptism necessary for the remittance of sin? uh, Is outward baptism?
1: Perhaps if it's uh, not for, in terms of eternal life, because there's still the remission of sin in this life, like, when we confess Mm -hmm. our sins every day. Yeah. So, I guess that's what I'm wondering. just.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's... Before the sins are given. So what does it mean when it
1: says baptisms for the remission of sins and to wash away your sins? What's the definition of
0: sin? <laughs> <laughs> you get you you guys should huddle up after Bible study <laughs> and and hash all this out. But here here's where
1: I'm with it being a metaphor, but somebody has to fill me because I'm having a hard time seeing it.
0: Yeah. Well, we could. I mean, on a molecular level, how does water wash away sin? How does a physical H two O wash away one's sins or remit one's sins? How is that even possible? Because you're taking a physical and the spiritual; and they can't affect one another. You well, yeah, see what I I'm think saying? I think now, it's a spiritual act. Yeah. it is a spiritual act in the sense that when you're doing it, you're saying something has changed in the spiritual component of my existence. But that water, that physical H2O, is not affecting anything that's inside of you. But
1: could God do something through the water?
0: He sure, he could do anything he, he wants. You that's he that's could do anything he wants. <laughs> yeah, obeyed, absolutely he could. And you did it, so here's, here's, my, here's my super, super weariness in saying, yes, that water affects some kind of state of your sinful heart, is that everyone in the sound of my voice will hear that if I have not done that the right way, that somehow there's lingering sin in my heart. Do you hear what I'm saying? But, yeah. We have to be very careful when we say, like, you need to do something physical to affect the spiritual component of who you are. I, I think I that that's... What,
1: I just want to know what the passage
0: means. Yeah. I think... I think... And we've had this question before. I think... Um, I think we got to be careful taking them too literal. That That what it's saying is, when you confess your sins you receive forgiveness. The natural response of that forgiveness is a physical act. And that is going into the water and saying, I'm going back into the womb, so to speak, and I'm coming up no longer a slave to sin. I've been remitted of my, of my slavery to sin. And now I am a child of God. And it doesn't, it isn't, it's not saying that, that that H2O is somehow affecting anything in the spiritual component of who you are. You see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not wiping away anything. It's not washing away anything. It's just a... The, and the, the Bible is full of these things where something changes about the the metaphysical components of who you are, the existence of who you are. Something changes in that and is redeemed or restored or... And then you do something physical to show that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that that physical thing is the completion of that non-physical thing. It just means... That you're wanting to show everyone and make a public declaration that something has changed in me. I mean, there's two guys hanging on either side of Yeshua that yeah, I think if they were able to get down off the cross, they would undergo ritual immersion and baptism. But it's like they they didn't require that water to be with him in paradise that day. I know, I have never said that. No, I know you're not, I know, but there there is no there is no way that physical H two O is in any way going to going to release you of your sin you see what i'm saying your confession of your sin and your reliance upon yeshua's work on the cross and his death for your sin is what will release you of that sin and the water is a physical way of it's a it's a like a object lesson you're telling everybody else look what happened to me i have been i have been forgiven Okay. But well, we can talk about it more afterwards. Yeah, I appreciate it. But yeah, Christian.